We're uh, in a series called Hashtag Hope. And uh, on our website or on our Facebook or on our Twitter, you can find all these different uh, verses and stories we're putting out there. And it's really kind of a neat deal. I don't even know how it works, all right? So I'm not going to even pretend I do. I'm not even on Facebook, so I'm a great advertisement for the whole thing. But those of you who know how to do that, like my kids... Uh, travel back and forth on that and rumble through it all. Um, There's pictures, there's all kinds of stuff. And the idea is we're trying to stimulate our hope in Jesus. And the reason for that is because I think a lot of us are flagging in hope. We're looking at stuff around us, we're becoming adults, and we suddenly realize, wow, life isn't as simple as it looked back when I was 14 years old. And so my goal and challenge is that we are to place our hope in Jesus, and I hope that's an exciting thing for you. And we're going to look at that some more this morning. So let's do just a brief review uh, where we've been going uh, with this whole thing. Um, I want to give you a couple of key points that we've been working off of, just get you back thinking along on this theme of hope. So number one, hope is the expectation or promise of good. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, and this famous, you know it, but we should always be reminded. Now faith is the assurance... That means the promise, the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That word conviction means I'm absolutely convinced whether I can see it or not. The conviction of things not seen, and, and for by it the people of old received their condemnation, their, not their condemnation, gosh, their commendation. There we go. Those words are pretty close together. All right. Secondly, Jesus is our source of hope. We've been saying it's really easy to have hope in a lot of things, and all of that's not wrong. It's good to hope in your children. It's good to hope for your marriage. It's good to hope that you get a raise, that kind of stuff. But ultimately, when you shake that all out, Jesus is our real source of hope. He's the one source of hope that won't let us down. And Colossians says there's a great mystery to this, and the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That when we go to the throne... And God says, why should I let you into my heaven? He will look at us and say, ah, you're one of my children. I recognize you. My son's in you. Won't that be awesome? Just think about that. Just, you don't have to pay for it. It's already been covered by you. Jesus is our hope. Then we talked last week about the importance of not shifting from our hope. It's easy to fall off the pedestal and fall off and lose our hope. Uh, And we can lose hope in the blink of an eye. Right? We, sh- we sing all these songs about, I won't be shaken and I won't do all this stuff. And, and the truth is, boom, and we're in depression. Right? <laughs> Life's going to die, you know, kind of thing. And we, we just, you know, fall all apart. But this is talking about the idea of don't shift from the hope you had at the beginning. When Jesus found you, he found you. When he found you, he sealed you. When he sealed you, he sealed you with an eternal hope. When he sealed you with an eternal hope, it's not going away. So he won't lose hope in you. Don't you lose hope in him. That's kind of the theme of that whole thing. And then this hope is an anchor for our soul. In other words, this becomes the, the place, uh, we call it anchoring down, right? This is the place where I always come back to. The chain may get jerked a lot. If you think of a ship in a storm, if you've ever watched that, a ship can get jerked a lot. But if the anchor holds, the ship is going to be okay because it'll stay there. Right? And that's this idea. In Hebrews chapter 6, it says, God did this so by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. And that is, number one, he made the promise to Abraham. And then number two, he became the guarantor of the promise to Abraham. Those are the two unchangeable things. It says he made an oath. 
We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. And he's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Way too much to go in this morning, but just the idea, Jesus went into the inner sanctuary. And that is true symbolically of the temple where the, te- the curtain was torn in two. But he's talking about the inner sanctuary of heaven. Jesus has gone into the inner sanctuary to intercede for you, to intercede for me. So he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us in the inner sanctuary. And likewise, he penetrates into the inner sanctuary of your heart. We do this really well as humans. Okay, Veil, none shall pass. He doesn't care. He blows right through you. You ever see Jesus just blow through your defenses? Boom, right? And he's in there. He goes into the inner sanctuary, and that's what this is kind of talking about. And then, lastly, we're to hold on to our hope, and here's the key point. We are not to shrink back. We are not to shrink back. Hebrews 10, yet for a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Faith, hope, love, all tied together, right? Shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Okay? This is not uh, chicken little. This is not a coward's game. This is faith takes great courage. I'll bet you if you knew how much courage it took when you first signed up, you might not have signed up. Right? It takes great faith. And God is looking for those who won't shrink back from him. And as you see pressures developing in our culture, the question is, will we, will we shrink back and slink away or will we up and lean in? And it's going to take great courage to do that. And this is what it's challenging us to and talking us to do. And then the last point that we're going to launch to this morning Hope is meshed with suffering and affliction. They just, they, they go together. Hebrews send, says, But recall the former days when you were enlightened and you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. You could add their humiliation. Right? And sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. So let's pray this morning, then we'll... Enter in. Father, as we're talking about this, none of us like the hope, affliction, suffering thing very much. I, I bet you that's not a secret to you. But I bet you also know that you have things planned for us that teach us about the perseverance and endurance we need to have as we head towards your kingdom. And Lord, as we enter in this morning, um, human words are not going to convict or convince. It's going to be your spirit that underlines and highlights or italicizes some point this morning that will catch our attention. And so I pray for that, the ministry of your spirit. May you do what you do well. Validate what you want to validate. And Lord, confirm what you want to confirm among us so that we know that you are among your people. And we ask for this in your name. Amen. All right. All right, so this last point, we brought this out last week. And... uh, If you're a thinking person, which all of you are, I I tell uh, young pastors, I said, never underestimate the person in the pew. The people in the pew are very, very smart. And to make it even worse from a pastor's perspective, many of you are very, very intuitive, all right? Which means the pastor can't throw baloney up front because you will instantly pick up on the spirit of the thing, not just the word of the thing. So that's why I always tell them, play it as straight up as you can play it because they'll know. 
And so, um, but likewise, that works for you as well because the Spirit of God is very intuitive, right? And the Spirit of God also is very smart. So he knows how to get you intuitors who are sitting out there intuiting me. So it's a fair game for all. I like it. All right. But one of the questions could be, well, okay, so this, I don't like your theme of suffering, hope, and affliction. Newsflash, neither do I. All right. But it is one of the major themes in all of Scripture. Uh, You cannot get away from it. And the hope of the kingdom, the hope tied in Jesus, is wrapped around often affliction and suffering. The older you get, the more you start to understand this. Uh, Particularly um, if you're uh, an elderly person. I remember my my friend Rich Liljenberg, at the time he was 84, a friend from North Shore days, and uh, he and Jenny, gorgeous couple, and um, he had fought on Omaha Beach. You know, the Omaha Beach, Normandy, World War II. He fought on Omaha Beach. And I remember I was at a men's retreat. Plug for men's retreat, guys. God can speak there in significant ways, um, even with your snoring. So come anyways. But he said to me, he said, you know, Steve, it takes great courage to become old. And I, at that time I was young, bulletproof, ripped, you know, couldn't ding me. And so I laughed and I walked away and I took about 10 steps. I was at Okerson Lodge in Lake Retreat. I can tell you exactly where I was when this happened. And I, I stopped and went, wait a minute. He fought on Omaha Beach. I don't know anything about that kind of courage. And if that guy is telling me that it takes great courage to get old, I should go back and ask him why. And one of the better moves of my life I actually turned around, got back to him. He was tired, so I sat back down, just like his buddy, you know, kind of a sunset next to him. He said, what are you doing back? I said, you know, you said something. And I laughed and I walked away and I realized I didn't catch what you were saying. So I'm back. I want to know why you said it takes great courage to become old. He says, Steve, here's why. He says, when you become old, everything's a takeaway. There are no additions. He said, everything's less. You have less health, you have less eyesight, you have less taste buds, you have less hearing, you have less hair. He says, but you also have less relationships because all the people you love start dying. He says, you have less ability, you have less future, you have less promise. He says, everything becomes a takeaway and it takes great courage to not become bitter and sour and uh, uh, just an angry old person. He said, you find people who have great joy in old life and you will find very courageous people. And I went, I'm going to file that, right? And I felt, and as I've said that to different crowds, there is an absolute murmur of recognition just like this morning. Boy, there's some truth in that. And so as we talk about the theme of hope and affliction, here's the good point. You're heading towards it whether you like it or not because you're all getting older. <laughs> Even you, Dean, Sorry. Right, and uh, and so it's going to require facing that with courage. And so as we as we think about this, um, you know, the question was, could, was that just Paul's perspective? You know, he went through a lot of intense trials, persecutions. Did that just create a bias in him? It's not normative, right? Um, because some would say, well, you used a lot of quotes out of Hebrews last week, and uh, the authorship of Hebrews is debated. Many think it's Paul, but. Uh, Scholars aren't really sure. Um, it could have been um, Luke. It could have been Barnabas. It could have been Apollos or several others, right? But 
even taking if that was Paul, are there any other writers in the New Testament that share this same theme of hope slash affliction slash suffering? Actually, there's several. Luke has major themes in it. If you read the Gospel of Luke and you read the book of Acts, he records the suffering and afflictions in his writings. Um, the, the book of John. Uh, it, it, John is an author, both the book of John, and then he wrote this book called Revelation. By the way, I just finished that, so I, I made it through the year, even ahead of Thanksgiving this year. And if you're in the reading through the Bible thing, I just want to encourage you, if you dropped it or flopped it, pick it back up. Lean back into it. you still got a month and a half. You'd be amazed how much you can read in a month and a half if you're just motivated. And I even want to sell a commercial for next year. Okay, if you were a disaster and you just crashed and burned this year, like you read one verse and said, that's all the farther you got, you can aim at December 31st and say, hey, January 1st, I'm going to start again. I will try again. And I will try to read through the Bible. I'll join you because I do it every year. I wait till December or January 1st, and then I jump on it, right? And I get going. And uh, so I just want to encourage you to, to read through the Word. But Revelation more than encompasses the uh, thought of hope, affliction, and suffering, probably more than any other book in the, the whole Bible. But I want to look at, uh, with Peter this morning. Peter shares this theme. And he goes to the churches of the dispersion, and uh, he writes this way. In First Peter, it begins like this. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. To those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, if you think about that, that is kind of um, a, a unique way to address people, right? You don't usually put elect exiles together, right? Like you blessed wanderers. Like you, uh, you know... Uh, it, it just doesn't go together. Um, when we think of exiles, who do we usually think of? We think of refugees. We think of refugee camps. Um, we have a number of those in our world these days. We know what those look like. Uh, we're talking about people not only lost their homes, they've lost their income. Many of them have lost their country. But we also think of people who've lost their status their security, many have lost family members, and most of the time they've lost their hope. When you think of a refugee camp, you do not think of a camp of hope. It's a camp of despair. And you do not think of people who are elect, right? Picked by God. That is not how you think of it. And yet Peter titles this to these churches, to the elect exiles. Watch how this theme uh, is woven. I'm going to be reading out of 1 Peter 1. You can turn there. It's too much to put up on the screen. Not even going to try and do it. But if you want to turn there, 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. I like that phrase, guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. 
And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls. In the midst of this dispersion, in the midst, uh, a great persecution broke out and wham, and the church got scattered all over the known Mediterranean world. In the midst of that, Peter is writing, in the midst of all these trials, he points them to the hope of their inheritance in heaven. Yeah, I got it. I know what you're going through. Peter himself knew what it was to go through. And he says, but I want to remind you who you are. I want to remind you of whose you are. And I want to remind you this is a short run compared to heaven. So keep your hope locked on heaven. He says this inheritance that we have coming to us is imperishable, means it can't be destroyed. It's not like groceries. Uh, I was putting the signs out today and the last couple of days I walked by and I noticed over by the UPS box out in the front, there were a couple bags of groceries that had been left out in the rain. Some apples, a box of corn puffs and several other things. And they sat in the rain for the last couple of days and I noticed nobody else picked them up. So I thought, well, if they're still there when I come by with the signs this morning, I'll pick them up. And trust me when I tell you that when I picked up those bags this morning, what was in those bags was perishable. All right? It did not last. It was yucky, and I had to throw them in the dumpster. Okay, It's talking about here, what we have in terms of inheritance is imperishable. It cannot rot away is the, the theme of that. It cannot disintegrate. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. Here's a big one for us, because almost all of us feel defiled and disqualified. Your inheritance in heaven is undefiled. It's pure. It's pure. Jesus looks at you and he will, God will see you and he, you will be undefiled. You will be, you'll be able to look him in the eye. That's hard for some of us to believe because we believe uh, that we will be on the ground begging for our very life, right? Because we know what dirt balls we've been and we know what scumbags we've been and we will just be trashed before him. Not so. You will stand before him. Pure. Now, it's good that we practice that beforehand. So you know what it feels like? But you'll be able to look him in the eye. It says the inheritance given you is pure. And then it also says that it is unfading. It's not like some of the lamps in your house. It's not like some of the headlights on your car. It's not like some of your flashlights in the storms, right? We're all saying, ooh. You ever have that? Fading, right? Our inheritance won't fade. And so he points these strings out. He says, they're kept in heaven for you, guarded by God. And the outcome of this, they rejoice. Although they are exiles, although they're in refugee camps, although they've lost everything, what does hope produce? Joy. Hope produces joy. It's kissing cousin is gratitude. Joy and gratitude go together when you have hope. And that's why I've always said that hope and gratitude are two telltale signs of a healthy church because they tell you the people in that church are still locked on the hope of their inheritance. Get your eyes off the hope that Jesus gives you and very quickly you will lose your joy and very quickly you will lose your gratitude. And that's where we grumble and complain and mumble and murmur and and then we do it against God himself which is not good just read exodus you'll get all you want to know about that there hope and joy are close cousins why because of what was happening to them is good no 
Not even close. Because of what it's achieving. Does anybody pick to go through suffering? I mean, do you stand in line going, oh, I'll, I'll pick that. Yeah. Uh, cancer? Yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm up for that. Bring it, that, bring it on. Do, do we stand in line to pick? No. Here's the thing. It picks you. Okay? And it will pick you. It will pick us. It won't all pick us the same way. It won't all the same challenges. We will all be faced with different things. But it picks us. And through that, we have to stay locked on to our hope. And so Peter says in this chapter, therefore preparing your mind for action. In other words, knowing what you're supposed to be about, knowing what the call is on your life, prepare your mind for action. In other words, get ready to live the Christian life. Come good or bad, lean into it, and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when everything else is failing, lock onto your hope that's coming to you in Jesus Christ and don't let go of that. Even if you feel it's the end. By the way, we are drama people. How many times you say, it's over, it's done, ah, right? And, and we just create a big drama fit, right? And then the truth is you made it through. Isn't that incredible? You made it through. Was it easy? No. Did you want to go through it? No. Did God have a way of bringing you through it? Yes. Right? We make it through. And you say, oh, yeah, but what if I die? Well, you'll be in heaven. What? So? Then you're with them. You made it through. Right? By the way, I got a newsflash. We're all going to die. Right? So if we're hanging on to, if I only go through life so I don't die, well, good grief. Hello, people. It is what it is. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you see people go through suffering, if they don't, you find them become very bitter people. But the people who do set their hope on Jesus are amazing. I have seen some of the most amazing suffering. Um, I mean, my heart wept when I had to walk into some of the hospital rooms I've had to walk into. Uh, and, and yet the people blessed me. I walked out being blessed because their hope was set. Um, I've had one person already in our church. They know it's their time to go home. They said, it's all right, Steve. I'm ready. He's been faithful to me all my life. He'll be faithful in this too. I'm ready to go. Can't wait. You ever talk to somebody like that? Like, okay, awesome. Do you need me to pray for you? Yeah, that'd be good. Right? They're, they're, they've got their hope locked. And that, that's really important. So here's what Peter says. When it comes to suffering... And we're talking about suffering and we're talking about uh, coming to communion this morning. He says, when suffering comes your way, don't be surprised. Now, in this passage, we're going to talk about more in the sense of persecution, but read it with me. It says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Another translation is the fiery ordeal. You ever been through a fiery ordeal? When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Oh my goodness, how could this be happening? Right? Of course, you're way more spiritual than that. You would never do that. Right? Do you ever whine when it comes your way? Oh, come on. Don't sit there stone-faced like, I have no idea what you're talking about. We all do, don't we? 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I think it's very hard to adjust. By the way, talking about suffering, I think it's really hard to adjust to the pressure um, of a fiery trial or a fiery ordeal because they don't send you an invitation. Oh, by the way, in three months, you will be going through a fiery ordeal. I just want to give you a heads up so you could pray ahead of time and be ready for it. Is that how they come to you? No, the plum, right? They, they catch you like a sleeper wave. Have you ever seen a sleeper wave on the coast? One in every seven waves is bigger, right? And so you get these waves, you're standing there, and all of a sudden the seventh wave comes in, and what happens? People get knocked over, and blankets and picnic baskets go scattering because that sleeper wave surprised you. And that's kind of how suffering hits us uh, because it comes on us suddenly. It is easy I find no fault with this. It is easy to be uh, overwhelmed, paralyzed, and to be absolutely taken back by the onslaught um, of the pressure one's facing. By the way, that's why you don't face it alone. That's why you need to have fellowship. That's why you need to have a posse. That's why you have to need a group. That's why we push so hard for community as a group. Somebody's got to be walking the trail with you so that when it hits, you've got somebody to hold you up. You've got somebody to walk it with you. You're not all alone. Because if you're all alone, you will get absolutely smashed and flattened. you got a posse. Scripture says a righteous man will fall down seven times, but get back up. Okay? And nine times out of ten, why you can get back up is other people around you are helping you get back up. And so, as we're talking here about this kind of pressure, um, this passage is talking about persecution, but there's, there's a lot of fiery ordeals. Let me just list a couple. Uh, you suddenly find yourself with an incurable medical condition or chronic pain. Suddenly you're fighting chronic pain every day. What does chronic pain do to somebody? Right? It just wants to gnarl your soul. You can't even remember what it was like to feel normal anymore. That is an incredible fiery trial. Um, you're sitting here this morning and you suddenly find yourself divorced. And you feel as if all your hope in life has been flamed to ashes. All your dreams have You're unemployed. You, you, you just, or you, or you, can't, you, you can't find work. You, you, bills are mounting. Or worse, you are working and you can't even make ends meet with working. And you're like, what do I do? And you're, it, it can be a fiery trial. You have to bury your spouse, and now you're a widow or widower. A number of us in this room would have experienced that. Worse, you've had to bury one of your children. The hardest funerals I ever have to do are when the parents have to bury the children, and they will weep and sob on my shoulder and say, it wasn't supposed to be this way. Very hard. All the encouragement is that we should not be shocked when we find ourselves in the midst of these kind of fiery trials, even persecution. We've not faced real persecution in our country for a long time. Odds are mounting that we will. We shouldn't be surprised. Okay, so now here's the encouragement. 
The encouragement is to be ready. First Peter, if you, you're there, go to chapter 3. It says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled. And then it says this, In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Notice the key thing there. Gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect are signs of strength. Raging and anger and blasts are signs of weakness. And what Peter's saying is, when you go through these fiery trials, be ready to give an answer, but make that answer, that defense you're giving of the hope that you have, make it gentle and make it with respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, that means your name's going to be thrown in the mud. What is that saying when you'll be slandered? Oh, it's such a human thing. It's not what? Fair. Any of you notice life's not fair? It's not going to be fair. If we have the expectation it's going to be fair, we're going to get really bummed and lose our hope. When you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, here's what Peter's saying. Okay? You can suffer, but you can suffer because you've been an idiot. I always tell people, it's one thing if you get hit with a bat. It's another thing if you give them the bat to hit you with. All right? And a lot of us are knuckleheads in life, and we have done that, and we get whapped with the bat that we handed to them, and then we go, ow! Right? Well, you dork, you handed the bat to them. Your bad behavior, your bad language, your bad attitude, you handed them the bat, and then you got whopped with it. Why were you shocked? Peter says, don't suffer like that. That's a dumb way to suffer. Now, who would know that? Who would know that? Peter. Did Peter give him the bat to hand it? Yeah, I don't know him. And it says he called that down with curses and swearing. We so tamed that down. Oh, Icky Pooter, I don't know him. That was not what he was doing, folks. He handed them the bat, and it came back and walloped them. And Peter went through horrific suffering because of what he did. He handed the bat. Peter said, don't, don't suffer like that. Don't suffer for doing bad things or being an evildoer. But if you have to suffer because you claim Jesus and you know him, then understand, be ready when the pressure hits. Be ready to give a good reply. Have you thought about how you will respond when you get persecuted because somebody will mock you that you claim to know Jesus? Have you even thought about that? Have you ever thought through your mind how you'd respond? You might want to get going on that. What are the significance of these quotes? I want to cement this for you. When we talk about the significance of these quotes, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, he was set apart by God. All the things that he wrote about suffering and persecutions were written to the Gentile believers. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. So all the things that Peter wrote were intended for the Jewish people who were becoming messianic and becoming believers in Jesus. What's that saying? All the bases are covered. Both Jew and Gentile alike are going to suffer. Where did Peter and Paul pull this from? Where did they get this template for hope and affliction and suffering being tied together? I want to suggest to you that they both reflected Jesus' teaching and example. They were disciples of their teacher. And they had learned from their teacher, and their teacher had taught them how to do this and how to go through this. 
As we come to communion this morning, as we get ready um, to do communion, I want to remind us of Jesus himself this morning. I want to remind us of Jesus and his example. I want to remind us of his call to us. And I want to remind us of his hope. When we look at his example, there's so much to pull. I just pulled from Isaiah 53. It kind of puts it in a nutshell. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. By the way, if anybody could have screamed or belly ached, wouldn't it have been Jesus? If anybody could have yelled, it's not fair, wouldn't it have been him? If anybody could have stomped his feet, said game over, and blown his trumpet, wouldn't it have been Jesus? It says, He didn't open his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shearers, so silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? You know enough about the life of Jesus, you can put all the stories into that little pocket, and they fit quite well. So Christ led by example, and then I want to remind us of his call on our life. In Luke 9, you can find it in various places, but it says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And I picked the loose passage deliberately because it says daily. Because a lot of us want our suffering to end today. And it's not going to. And God's asking us to lean into it, to pick up the cross. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? The old now the translation of it says, loses his soul. What does it profit a man? He gains the whole world and yet loses his soul. By the way, you watch a lot of that on Saturday and Sunday. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him, I, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and of the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You know, we need to think about which side of the fence, whose team we're on. And are we proud of our captain? You know, uh, if you watch in the NFL, there's some teams that start falling apart. What's the first thing they do? Throw the coach under the bus. If we had a better coach, if we had a coach who had a better game plan, we wouldn't be such a lousy team. And under pressure, it's really easy to throw Jesus under the bus. I never, I never knew him. Uh, I, no, I wasn't really a follower. So Steve, what did you do for the last 35 years? Oh, I worked with people. We can get pretty clever in that, right? says do not be ashamed and then i want to remind us of the hope of christ in hebrews it says therefore since we are surrounded this is hebrews chapter 10 by such a great cloud of witnesses let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us your race your journey through life is not an accident it is not uh, the sticks game where you just get shaken around a can and thrown out and whatever lands your way, lands your way. It is divinely overseen by God. And as he promises, he will walk with you through it. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's saying this. When Jesus came, he had hope 
that the plan that was created since the foundation world would bear fruit and that there would be people of every generation that would hear his name and hear his call and they would follow him. And it says, therefore, because of that, he scorned the shame of the cross. Means he was hanging up there naked. Means he was battered and bruised and looked like an absolute loser. Two of the things that we hate the worst. He says he scorned that shame for the joy, the hope that was set before him. Because he knew people would respond. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I want to call us to communion this morning. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We have four tables, and uh, I want you to come down. So you'll come to the middle aisle. So the middle sections come. You'll come to these two tables, go back. Guys, you come to the middle, go, and then go back around and come out so we don't collide into each other. Back, come down the sides. But when we come to communion this morning, I want us to consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so we will not grow weary and lose heart. I want you to take the bread and I want you to take the cup and take it back to your seat. Don't uh, do communion separately. We'll do it all together. I want to close with a closing picture. But I want you to take it. I want you to consider the bread and I want you to consider that cup and the symbols that are there. What do those really stand for? We're going to do this in silence. As we consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. What's the last phrase there? Don't lose hope. Three times in 2 Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 3 and 4, do not grow weary and lose hope. When Jesus comes back in the end days, what was, what was the phrase? Will he find any faith? Faith gets lost if you lose what? Hope. Jesus is saying, will anybody be hoping for me to return when I actually come? Is anybody even watching? And we want to be the people that say, yes, Lord, we're watching. We may not be many but our hope is in you. So bow your heads for just a minute, would you? What has the Lord pointed out to you this morning? Kind of seal that in your heart. And then as you feel led, come forward.